You have to decide for yourself whose support is important to you. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Listeners, I'm super stoked to introduce my guest, Jeff Birdie. He's the CEO of FC Cincinnati. He's also pretty, uh, he's a pretty big deal in Cincinnati. Jeff, we have a lot of listeners that are not just in Cincinnati. So that's why when we go through our interview today, you're going to have to talk as if people don't know you, but welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. Thank you for being here. Okay. So you grew up on the West side of town. And describe your neighborhood and where you were in your sibling uh, family count. Sure. So I grew up in Westwood. Yes. uh, Which is sort of a working class, very Catholic when I was growing up neighborhood. I grew up right across the street from St. Catherine's Church and St. Catherine's School. Okay. Uh, I could hear the first bell. And that gave me four minutes to get to my desk. I could run across the street, run in the school and be in my seat before I got in trouble. Uh, So that gave me a few minutes extra sleep. I could come home for lunch. Nice. uh, Which I uh, most usually uh, did and then turn around and go back to the playground. Uh, I played sports all year round for the St. Catharines teams, whether it was basketball, baseball, uh, soccer, and football. Uh, all summer long, there was a recreation center right up the street, so a big swimming pool. So all summer, my mom would throw us out yep. and say, don't come back until dinner time." and you could get lunch at the pool. Uh, and we would just literally play at the park and play at the pool and play board games. And um, it was just a, it was a really fun childhood. What were you in the birth order? Because I, I read you have nine siblings. So we're the Brady Bunch plus five. Okay. So the Brady Bunch plus four. Yeah. Um, So when I was 12, my parents divorced uh, in 1979. And um, my father. That wasn't very common back then, right? No. Well, here's even more uncommon. My dad got custody of five kids in 1979. Really? So, and then uh, several years later, my father married another woman from St. Catherine's Parish who had five kids. And so we went from having five kids to 10 kids, oh my gosh. seven boys and three girls. Um, so I was the oldest boy of the birdings. Okay. So I have an older sister and then there's three boys and then I have a younger sister. Okay. But then when five became 10, yeah. I became um, the second uh, oldest boy where then there was two girls, an older boy than me. So I was fourth of the 10. Okay. So can I ask a question? And you don't have to answer sure. this if not. What what happened to your mom? Um, she decided she wanted to start over. Uh and um and you know, she she did her own thing and uh she uh moved to Indiana uh and um you know still had a relationship with her, still have a good relationship with her to this day. She remarried someone the same year my dad remarried, and my father is still married to my stepmother and my stepfather who was a stepfather for i think 38 years died of covid uh uh, yeah literally almost uh, a year and a week ago uh so um my point is my mom yeah had made a very happy life and my father had a very happy life that's good um but my father's happy life included 10 kids running around making all kinds of trouble (laughs) what did your dad do for a living so he was a traveling sales guy. He called on uh, independent um, uh, pharmacies. Okay. I like to say when you go to a drugstore and get your prescription, there's a, a little brown vial with a label on it, a lid on it, uh, and it's put in a little bag. And as you walk out, my father sold everything to that pharmacy except for the drugs. Wow. So the drugs in the vial, but you know it says Kemper Pharmacy or Tishbein Pharmacy. Sure. Um, and then they type your name, right? Spits it out of a computer printer and yeah. uh, tells you to take one a day. Maybe there's a little sticker that says may cause drowsiness. Um, my father sold those 
supplies, those printing supplies, and he would call on pharmacies all over the Midwest. And so when my parents divorced, my grandmother, okay. who my dad's mother who lived nearby, would come and stay with us while my dad was out of town. And then when he would come back in town at the end of the week, grandma would go back to my grandfather and um, we just, we rolled with it. That was life. Yeah, totally. That was, that was what was the norm for you. Yes. How do you feel? And I had really good friends. I mean, you know, I I am still to this day, you know, 40 years uh, after all this, uh, 45 years after all this, several times a year, those buddies of mine from when we were 10 years old, eight years old, 14 years old, I still see all those guys. We have text trains where, you know, we tell funny stories and we keep up with each other and like the, the, those, those were the guys that I grew up with because yeah, there was a little bit of dysfunction at times yeah. uh, at home, but those were the guys I played basketball with. I played baseball with, um, you know, ran around the neighborhood together. Yeah. How old were you when your parents divorced? 12. Oh, okay. So pretty, pretty impactful time, right? I mean, it is for any, any time for a yeah. kid. So your dad is a traveling salesman. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you've done is sales, right? Any other attributes you think you got from him? My dad was a very good athlete, to be fair. So was my mom. And so when I was growing up, I was pretty pretty good in sports. My buddies would make sure that you knew that I wasn't claiming I was the best athlete, but I was I was very competitive. I was Pete Rose. I was Kurt Rambis. You That's were even Pete a Rose. One. I don't know who Kurt Rambis, I don't know who that guy is, but I know Pete Rose. I, I was a try hard guy. I competed hard. Yeah. Um, I got in fights. No. Um, in basketball, I would foul out, but I earned every foul. <laughs> and I never had little fouls. I had hard fouls. Um, and there was probably a little bit of, you know, sports was a little bit of my um, salvation. Sports was yeah. where I, you know, got away from everything that was going on. To be fair, so was school. My teachers were mentors of mine. I can tell you about Jerry Walsh, who was my sixth grade teacher. Uh, Mr. Nagel was my seventh grade teacher. Mr. Hummel was my eighth grade teacher. Don Ricketts was my football coach. They were the ones that encouraged me to go to St. X. They were the ones that encouraged my love of reading. Did a lot of um, kids from your, from your grade school go to St. X? Uh, just, uh, I think, two, two or three. Oh, no. Most of my buddies went to LaSalle. Okay, so listeners outside of Cincinnati, those are their two Catholic schools in sort of different neighborhoods, and they were also rivals, right, Jeff? Yes. Yes. But, you know, it was so fun because when we competed, we were rivals. And then after the game, they would joke and say, like, I remember this from my senior year, we, we beat LaSalle pretty handily, and they were joking with me that at halftime, their coach was yelling, can't someone block 81? That was me. <laughs> And my buddies thought that that was pretty funny. At the time, they didn't like that they lost, but they were like, Bernie and our coach was all over us about you because I had, you know, I played a pretty good game. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the school academics was really a escape or a safe haven. Sports, your friends, it sounds like was really important. Yeah, I mean, I was a big, the big red machine. Right? Yes. Um, 75 and 76. Um, I was uh, eight, nine years old. Um, I, I, I was a decent baseball player. I loved baseball and uh, I worked very hard to get straight A's because if you got straight A's, you got to go to the Reds game for free. You got free tickets to the Reds game. Really? And so I was very competitive. I wanted to be the smartest guy in the school in my grade. So, you know, I got straight A's pretty much all through grade school. And again, not because I was brilliant, but I worked hard. Worked it was important hard. to me. And my teachers really helped me with a, a love of learning. And, and then that competitive juices, you know, have always been a part of my wiring. Was your dad competitive? Oh yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, so was my mom. I mean, my, my mom and dad played on an intramural softball team really? and my mom was, it was, I mean, unbelievable. My mom was such a good softball player. When you're in college, you go off to college, you go to Miami. Mm-hmm. Do you know you want to go into politics after that? hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, I, I either wanted to go into politics or I wanted to go to law school. Mm-hmm. The St. X, so St. X is the Jesuit high school. Men for others is the mantra. 
that to those who much is given, much is expected. And I really felt a calling uh, to be somewhat of a leader to make a difference in the world. Uh, I started out at Miami as international studies and with an emphasis on Africa. And I was really interested in the world hunger crisis, but I couldn't master French because I took Latin in high school and I, I walk into French 101 and people have had three years of high school French and they're yeah. talking French and I'm going to the teacher. I'm in the wrong class. I, like everyone's talking French. This is French 101. She's like, well, that's how you learn. And I said, yeah, well, they've already learned. I'm like, I took Latin. And so I just struggled. And then at that time, Gorbachev came to uh, power in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe that's a different way to make the world a better place at that time. And I thought everyone is Russian 101. No one's had Russian right, in high school. Right. So, I, so I, I switched over from international studies with French to diplomacy, foreign affairs, political science with Russian. And wow. um, went to Russia three times, studied really? there for one summer, 1988. Where did you study over there? They had a, a program over there that was, you know, tied to one of the universities. I don't think it was Moscow State University, but um, I went over with a group of uh, students from Miami, from Vanderbilt, and uh, one other school. There was like 30 of us. Um, and I can remember to this day walking up. The first night we got there, we took the subway and went up the uh, brick walk, stone walk into Red Square. And if you think about when uh, during the 70s and early 80s, you know, this, the May Day Festival where they have all the missile launchers and all the troops and all the tanks. And you see that on the news. And I remember walking up and standing in the middle of Red Square and there's the Kremlin and there's Lenin's mausoleum and there's beautiful St. Basil's Cathedral. Mm -hmm. And I remember th literally thinking, man, I'm a long way from Westwood. <laughs> Like, this is pretty unbelievable. I can't believe I'm here. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it made me appreciate that there's this whole world out there. When you graduate from college, where do you go work? So I was very involved in student government at Miami. I got elected a few times to student government, like, uh, you know, student body, uh, vice president, executive vice president, chair of the student senate, the president of the Ohio Students Association. Through that, I met uh, Governor Celeste. Dick Celeste. Yep. He actually stayed in my dorm room when I was what? an RA. I, yeah, I was an RA and he spent an overnight at Miami and I was his host. He slept in my dorm room. No way. I could tell some good stories about Governor Celeste visiting my, my corridor. What politician uh, guys would do that today? Yeah, no one would. We had a pizza party with the governor. Get out. Yeah, great story. One of the policies at Miami University is at that time was visitation. You couldn't have girls in your room. Right. Like you couldn't have the opposite sex in your room after right. midnight. And um, the governor tells a story about he was at Yale uh, and he was from Cleveland um, and had a girlfriend at Miami University from high school that he would he would literally drive. They would leave. They would no Friday class, Thursday after school, drive, spend the weekend, drive back on Sunday. And um, so he tells that story. And um, someone said, did they have visitation then? And the governor said, uh, yeah, they did. And he and he says, um, the student says, well, you, so then you understand how awful the policy is. And he said, boys, I didn't drive, you know, eight hours to not be able to, you know, break visitation. <laughs> and of course, all the guys were like, yeah, that's awesome. The governor broke visitation. <laughs> I can't believe he stayed in a dorm room. That's insane. Yes. So I love being an RA. That was sort of my first leadership opportunity. Yeah. Um, I, I had to finance my own way through college. So being an RA, you got free room and board. So for me, it was great. And the, I, I had uh, two RAs with me that year, uh, two guys from Chicago that are still my best friends today. One's in Denver, uh, Matt, and one guy's in uh, Houston, Russ. So again, formative years. I feel like I had a, really, you would be a really good friend to somebody. You're good at being a friend. I try to be available. Um, and I try to really maintain the relationship. I'm not saying I'm perfect by any means, but my, my friends are important to me where they know if they ever need anything, you know, I'm going to be available. And my travels with the Bengals were great because I, we'd play Denver and I'd see Matt. We'd play Houston. I'd see yeah. uh, Russ or we'd meet up in Chicago to go to a Reds-Cubs game, things like that. Yeah. Um, so I was an RA right. and um, ran for student government. Because I thought, 
you know, I have this, I have a leadership ability, I think. And so I'm going to run and I win. And if you've ever seen the movie, The Candidate with Robert Redford. No, sorry. Sorry. After he gets elected uh, to this uh, office, he turns to his campaign manager and says, now what? Like, he is a great candidate. He was a brilliant candidate, but he wins. And he's like, I don't know what the hell to do. I just, I ask people to vote for me. And so I had this woman advisor at Miami, Leslie Haxby McNeil, someone who, again, I've stayed in touch with, who said, don't worry, Jeff, I'm not going to let you fail. And she was the advisor to residence life. I oversaw all the programming in all the residence halls um, and a governance system in the residence halls. And um, so anyway, it's sort of that became my college leadership trek that when I graduated from college, I knew a lot of people in Ohio Yes, through the president of the Ohio Students Association, the governor, Governor Celeste. So I got a job working for Tony Celebrezzi for governor. And I did that for about nine, 10 months. Obviously, he didn't win. We lost to George Voinovich. And then I worked in the Ohio House of Representatives for Vern Reif, who was the speaker. Did that for about a year and a half. Then I worked up in Cleveland for the county commissioner. Then I then I came back to Columbus to work for John Glenn, U.S. Senator John Glenn. Yeah, I read that. He was running for re-election in 92 against her, who became our current governor, Mike DeWine. Uh, and um, the lieutenant governor, DeWine, did not win. John Glenn got reelected successfully for his final term in office. And then I went to Washington, D.C. and worked in a law firm doing sort of legislative affairs for the clients of the law firm, which included like the Consumer Bank Association, United Negro College Fund, uh, various elements of financial aid and student loans, because I knew that world a little bit from my own experience and my leadership back in Ohio. All right, I want to pause. I feel like you've got this political career part of your life, right? And then you move into some other areas. So with that first chapter, Mm -hmm. what was your biggest learning lesson? So I just had a conversation today with someone who was younger, just starting their career. and, And I said to them what the answer to this question is. Okay. Early in your career, it's all about mentors. It's all about uh, learning uh, about yourself, learning opportunities, building uh, relationships, and developing skills. And if you have an opportunity to go work with someone where you're going to learn about yourself, you're going to learn new skills, and someone's going to support you in that effort, effectively be your your, uh, number one backer. That's more important than however much money you're going to make. Like your college professor that said, I'm not going to let you fail. Yes. Leslie Haxby McNeil. Yeah. My college advisor. Yeah. Advisor. And in, in my campaign world, I had multiple of them. Tom Winters, uh, Kevin Bertsloff, um, uh, a guy here in Cincinnati, Tom Conlon was enormously impactful. How is that? So I feel like today, I mean, I'm still learning from others. What's the difference between then and now? And I would suspect you are still a learner too. 100%. You're learning or you're dying. I don't like the idea of dying. So I try to learn (laughs) for sure. I I think the difference uh, to a certain degree is um, I think there's a, maybe a little bit of a skepticism uh, at at times. I think people can be a little more self-absorbed, unfortunately. Um, I always say, get your nose out of your phone. Uh, and meet people where they are uh, on their terms. That's number one. I, but number two, and I think this is enormously important, and I've challenged people, including who work with us. Back then, most of the people who were in positions of leadership were white men. Yeah. Just that's the way it was. I'm talking about the 80s, mid 80s, uh, and early 90s. And so, who did they want to mentor? People that reminded them of themselves. It looks people, like them. Yes. And, and it's just sort of but natural. That's, you know that that's human nature. Like, of course. Yeah. There's a comfort level with that, a familiarity. And I was an enormous beneficiary of that. Yeah. So I will tell you where it's different, at least, is now I think there's a greater recognition that all of us have a responsibility to get outside of our comfort level and look for people who maybe look different than us or have different backgrounds than us. And, and go out of your way to mentor them. Give them a hand up because 
if you're not, and you're not challenging others to do the same, no one may. And someone who's enormously talented may have missed out on an opportunity that you had, and you didn't even look their way. You didn't even think of them. Yeah. And then our world needs everyone who's talented to be given a shot to help solve problems, to help grow our businesses. And so we have to, you know, and, and in particular, I say to business people, today's consumer is looking for companies who share their values. Right. And younger consumers, they value inclusivity. They value inclusive capitalism. They value people that pay attention to diversity, equity, and include, right? And so if you're not leaning into that space so that when they look at who is running a company, that they see people that reflect the beautiful diversity that we have, they're going to think that maybe you don't share their values and they may go to your competitor instead. At what point, what was the turning point that you realized that? And I asked that because I feel like, so I'm a little bit younger than you, not much. And I think that there was a transitional period where we were talking about that for a while and then it wasn't being heard and now it's being heard. So I want you, Jeff, to share when did you finally hear that message or understand that message and incorporate it into your behavior? When did it become a behavior change? Yeah. You? So um, I was elected to city council for the first time in 2005. I served on Cincinnati City Council largely from 05 or 06 to uh, 2011. So for about six years, while also being um, an executive at the Bengals. So I had two f- almost full-time jobs for right. six years. And during that time, when I was at the Bengals, I was the one that dealt with a lot of the players. Marvin Lewis was a mentor of mine. And I got to know a lot of the players and their backgrounds. I mean, I could tell you stories about Chad Johnson, Ocho Cinco, right? Oh my God. Um, I don't, do you know what some of those stories I don't want to hear? So, and I was also, I worked with Mark Mallory and having political conversations with Mark. And Mark Mallory used to, um, was our previous mayor. Yeah, for eight years. Um, and so what I would say is I probably had a little greater awareness from both my own direct political experience of being a member, elected member of Cincinnati City Council, but also talking to Marvin and talk, Three who black was obviously men. an African-American head coach, right. one of very few in the NFL, um, who, and you know this still happens today, like this is a very topical um, uh, agenda item. Uh, you know, it's in the news. There's been a lawsuit by a, a former NFL coach who feels like the opportunities that the NFL talks about aren't real. Um, and Marvin, who was an enormously successful coach uh, at the Cincinnati Bengals, has not been given an opportunity to be another NFL head coach. Mm. Um, and 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 so it makes you like, who is being their shepherd? Who is being their champion to make sure that they're getting other opportunities. And, um, you know, uh, one, one of the things I learned on city councils, you know, a lot, everyone talks about, Oh, you know, you want people to clean up their act. You want people to not commit crimes. You want people to do the right thing. But if people can't put food on the table, right. Um, they're, they're going to do whatever they have to do to put food on the table. And so if we're not giving people the opportunity for jobs and you talk about people who have maybe been in prison, they paid a mistake, they paid their, their dues, but then they come out and no one's willing to give them a second chance. And so there's. Um, so you know, for you, we were, it was like those friendships with those men who were able to provide their life experiences, their belief systems, their opinions on things that helped shift and, and sort of open your heart and your mind. I think my heart was always open. I think the mind more so. It just was different than my own experience, right? Right. Um, I you know what I mean, very- though? I think there was a there there were tipping points for there were tipping points for me at times where um, I had I created and developed a really close relationship with a female African American, my first female African American friend, and she was the one that opened my eyes to it. You know, so I think each one of us has those times where things change, our perceptions yes. change. Well, you know, think of Rodney King, right? Um, can we all just get along? I quote that all the time. Yeah. You know, I just, I, I, I want to be like Rodney King. Can we all just get along? Yeah. Can we all see each other as human? Can we all see each other as someone who 
is worthy of love and respect and, and opportunity. Do you feel and, like the um, new sports creates a space that uh, encourages that? Of course, because you're in a team. You know, there, you know, the saying, there's no I in team. Yeah. I mean, it takes all of us in a team to reach our goals. All of us, and we sacrifice for each other and we compete with one another against the, the other, other team. And, um, you know, it's like being in a, and I, I don't, this is a metaphor, but it's like being in a foxhole where, yeah. you know, when your life is at stake and you need the other person to protect your life, you're not worried about if they're black or who they pray to or what their situation is back at home. But this is my brother who I'm, I'm putting my life in his hands and he's doing the same with me. And we got to trust each other uh, to accomplish, uh, you know, to stay safe. Again, sports isn't war, but it is in the locker room. It is somewhat akin to that where everyone has to do their job. Everyone, everyone has to uh, prepare. Everyone has to sacrifice. Everyone's playing hurt and putting their bodies on the line for each other. And when you have that, I mean, pretty extraordinary level of commitment and sacrifice to one another, it gets much easier to break down those barriers in, in sports than maybe in the corporate workplace. And so there's no question for me that sports locker room has been for me a, a key area of learning and personal growth. And uh, again, I, I cite Marvin Lewis as one of my most important mentors. I love that. So while you were talking, even though I try to be super present and listen to everything you say, I really do try with every guest. I went off a tangent on Ted Lasso and thinking about Ted Lasso and how so many people in the last year, just from watching that show, have been reminded of what sports can bring us and the goodness of sports. We certainly watch it. Carl Linder called me when that first came out said, Jeff, are you watching Ted Lasso? Obviously, this is during the pandemic. And I'm like, no, no, what's Ted Lasso? And he goes, oh my God, you got to watch it. It's about an NFL guy that takes over a soccer team. Jeff, that's you. You're an NFL guy. Took over soccer. He's like, like you got to watch this show. It's hilarious. So, of course, Lindsay and I watched Ted Lasso. I love that. Yes. And so, re- recently, um, we just, um, Carl promoted me to CEO and so we're hiring a team president and people are like, so what are you going to do with the team president? I said, I'm going to go Ted Lasso and hire Marvin Lewis to be our team president. And everyone gets that, right? That's, totally. that's, that's funny. Uh, are you going to do that? Who knows? Okay. Who knows? Okay. 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 Our listeners are probably like, well, shit, this guy, maybe he had a rough childhood at times, but not, but pretty good. And then not yeah, horrible. he had a, he went to college. He loved Miami. He had a great political career. He worked for the Bengals, and now he's CEO of the first soccer team in Cincinnati. Like, what challenges has he had? What would you tell him? Um. Well, let's uh, let's start with. Uh, so, I, I had a failed marriage. I'm in my second marriage to Lindsay. Okay. Very happy. We just celebrated 13 years. Um, Congratulations. Uh, I have three kids in their 20s. Um, and when you're bringing them up in two different households, not easy. Yeah. Certainly challenges. Um, what did you learn from what, those two things? Um, I, I'm an optimist. So I always assume things will get better. And so try not to live too much in the moment. Yeah. Um, and, and definitely try I, I try not to let the past define the, the the current or what the future can can be. Because if I had done that, then I wouldn't have mounted to anything. Um, I, I would have been caught up and my mom just left and she's starting a different life and woe is me and not trusting for relationships. I mean, I, I could have just lived in, you know, that. Um, you know, most of my family, I only have the 10 kids, only two of us went to college. Um, so I always, I'm, I'm a hundred percent an optimist and, and never want to be defined by the past. We all make mistakes. Um, and it's better just to believe that people make the best decisions they can at the time, even if they're hurtful, even if, uh, they're wrong. Um, but 
you know, continue to try to love and, and, and encourage and, you know, be the best version of ourselves every day. And, and at the end of the day, we can have happiness. And, but there's no question that those were very difficult years. Um, and, you know, the, the, being a parent every day is, you know, someone said to me recently, you're only as happy as your least happy child. Okay. And do you agree with that? Because I have a problem with that. Um, here's the point that I agree with when you have a child who's really struggling, yeah, really struggling, it is very hard to be completely at ease about the world because you're very, if you have a child struggling, um, that is a burden that you feel to your core because of course we all want our kids to be happy. That doesn't mean that we aren't happy and celebrating our other children. But for ourselves, it is very difficult to be really at peace when one of our children is are really struggling. So my aunt uses that line all the time. And and you know her. And I don't like that line. But also, Jeff, I don't have kids, so I can't really totally understand it. But here's why I don't like it. It's like at some point, First of all, you love them, right? But you're not, when they're adults, you're not responsible for everything. And you have your own happiness that you create. And so the optimism thing for me is that always sounded like so pessimistic because nobody's life is ever going to be on cloud nine every single day. And so then your, your baseline's always down here. Yeah. So I think that the qualifier would not be a baseline a little below average and so therefore I'm below average. Okay. Yes. I think the better the baseline would be if you have one of your children who's struggling. Yes. I can go that's I can different go than just that. a little unhappy with their life. Yes. I can super duper get on yes. I can get on board with that. Here's another And so I, I've had that. I've had that. Yeah. And so um and then the last thing to answer your question you know, I left the Bengals to create FC Cincinnati. I remember Marvin Lewis going, you're leaving the Bengals to start a soccer team. Where? And I said, in Cincinnati. And he said, who's going to go to the games? And I said, everyone's going to go to the games. Watch. And he said, so a major league team? And I said, a minor league team? He goes, wait, you're leaving the NFL to start a minor league team in Cincinnati, which doesn't really have like a history of soccer, not a ton of diversity. Like, And I said, Marvin, watch. And I brought Marvin to one of the games, uh, I think in the Open Cup in 17, where we had 32,000 people and it was electric. And he's like, how did you see this? How did you see this? And I just said, I did. I had a very clear vision for what this was going to become. But where I was going with this is first year, enormously successful, knock the market off. Yeah. Second year, we win the Open Cup uh, to the semifinals, 35,000 people, crazy successful profitable uh, the first year, profitable the second year. We're going through MLS expansion. Third year, we go, we go 23 games in a row unbeaten. We get our expansion bid. We're going to build a stadium. Everything is going to be great. And then the fourth year, they made us move into Major League Soccer before we were ready. And I'm going to be fair. Carl and I didn't know what we didn't know. We weren't ready. Yeah. And we've been the worst team in the league three years in a row. There are team cities that have MLS teams that in their fourth year, they play for the first time. St. Louis next year, fourth year, play for the first time. Here's my point. Like they had four years to build, three years to build so that in their fourth year, they play. We played for three years. We were God awful. It was miserable, enormously unhappy, lost a level of fan interest, lost a lot of passion from our most uh, soccer committed supporters. And those were enormously challenging times. Literally, it's like as good as everything went, as blessed as we felt the first three years. Yeah. The last three years have been incredibly difficult. Then you throw the pandemic in. We lost you know, no fans our second year. We opened a stadium last year in a pandemic. The team's still horrible, have gone through multiple coaches, multiple GMs. You know, I, I could write a book someday about all of that. So, But through it all, I've been constantly learning, evolving. I'm the CEO now. We're going to have a team president. We're addressing a lot of what went wrong. Yes. Um, we have a new GM. We have a new head coach. They're familiar with winning in Major League Soccer. Um, and um, we're going to continue to grow the enterprise. And I continue to be optimist about what we're building. It sounds too, and this is what I love about all of my guests, 
This is why they're successful because they don't sweat the small stuff. They don't live in the rear view mirror. Yes, they learn from it, but then they move forward. Yeah. And the other thing I tell my um, kids, you have to decide for yourself whose support is important to you. So for me, right, my family, Lindsay, my wife, my partner, Carl Lindner, Martha Lindner, Meg Whitman, uh, the other partners that own FC Cincinnati, you know. So that's as long as I am earning their respect and I have their support, then I can keep going. My point is, I don't listen to social media at all. I know it's it's I know it's said when you're the worst team in a row three years. I I I know how this works. Right. But I th- I call it rat poison for the brain. And if you live if you live in that world you will be enormously unhappy. Um, and, and how can you be successful if you're mired in the negativity? You can't be because I think the most uh, successful leaders are optimists. That doesn't mean that they're naive. doesn't mean that they're not learning. It's not that they're unaware of their, their shortcomings and their mistakes, but you just got to keep growing. You got to keep building. You got to learn. And then you got to make the changes. I'm, I'm a big believer. We say this at FC Cincinnati. This is not a place to fear mistakes. Just don't keep repeating them. If you're repeating mistakes, then I think you're not very bright. So, but if you make mistakes because you use good judgment, you did your research, you collaborated, you communicated, and you just made the wrong call, we can learn from that. We can overcome that. Can I tell you something? My Uncle Bob, so listeners, some of you may know this, some of you may not. He owns the Cincinnati Reds. Jeff knows him very well. He taught me this great lesson. One time I was I was like at a Reds game and I saw him afterwards and I said, oh, I was at this Reds game and there was this fan who was so excited and he just loved you and he just, you know, was so pumped about you. And I said, you know, like, I just wanted to tell you that. What does that feel like? And he said, Sarah. There, one day a fan is going to love me and the next day a fan's going to hate me. And so I have to stay right here in the middle with it. And I was like, oh my God, like that's not just a learning lesson for running a ginormous team like you do and he does. That goes back to your point of you focus on who are those people that you really care that, you know, that are most important to you and what they think of you. And that right. keeps you humble and that keeps you centered. And um, I mean, let, let me be clear. I try to be a good person. Like I, I try to make good decisions so that there will never be anything on the front page that, that I did something that embarrassed my family or that I couldn't own. Right. Okay. So I, I try to be nice to everyone. I really sure. do. So I care about people. Yes. But at the end of the day, I accept that the leadership high profile position I'm in, some people are going to disagree. They're going to uh, feel, you know, anger because sports has passion. Yes. And we live in that passion. Yes. So that passion isn't apathy. That passion can be anger. And that's okay because it means people care. And so sometimes people are going to be angry with me. And I'm okay with that because at the end of the day, I feel confident in the plan and I feel confident where I'm trying to take our club. And we're, we're trying to make a big contribution to this community. Yeah. And you are. Were you always that confident or had, did you have to grow that thick skin? Oh, a hundred percent. Like how? That my, my political background really helped me there. Uh-huh. When, 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 when you're in politics and, and social media was just coming of age in 2005 to 2011, I had to tell my kids, you can't look on social media. Or Back then the Cincinnati Enquirer would have comments. So you could read the article and then there'd be comments. Eat. And I would say, you can't read the comments because it's just full of vitriol and, and, in, in politics, you don't I mean if you're in a head-to-head race, right? You have to get 50% plus one vote. That means 49% of the people can hate your guts, but you're still elected. And so it's not about pleasing everybody. Stand for something and there'll be others who disagree that don't stand with you. And that's okay. Stand for something. Is that what keeps you anchored? Standing for something? Yes. What yeah. else? And I, I, I am like Bob. This is a criticism of myself. I get this all the time. I don't smell the roses. I, I don't, I'm trying to get better at living in the moment to be happy, to find joy, to be excited about what maybe I've been a part of 
helping this community and our team and whatnot accomplish. But I'm like Bob, I'm like right there. And I I say this all the time to point my wife jokes about it. I'm just a, a humble kid from Westwood and I've accomplished more in my life than ever thought possible. I had teachers and coaches and mentors that have lift, you know, literally with a big uh, uh, hand pulled me up and given me all these opportunities. But at the end of the day, I'm still that kid with horn rim glasses taped together uh, in the middle, um, you know, doing my best to compete and um, have fun. And so I never lose sight of where I've come from and who I am. And I don't get too caught up in what I'm doing now or what people say about it. That's a gift. Well, I you. want to tell you that I, I absolutely love FC. Like I'm a fan. Okay. And I love the vibe there. I mean, I legit love FC anyway. Thank you. So to st- stay on that, I mean, I love the power of sports and what it represents because we have great things in this city. If you think about our arts community, we so punch above our weight class and our business community punches above its weight class. And we have a great dining scene these days. We have architecture yeah. and geography. Like we have all these cool things. But right now, the whole country is talking about Cincinnati, not because of any of those things. They're talking about Cincinnati because of the Bengals. Right. And when FC Cincinnati uh, built our stadium and we hosted USA versus Mexico, yes. and that was a soccer match viewed around the world, and people were going, oh my goodness, look at this stadium, and it's in Cincinnati. And if we get the opportunity to host FIFA World Cup in 2026, and I'm bullish that we're going to get that opportunity. All around the world, it's the biggest sporting events worthy of 10 Super Bowls. People are going to be talking about Cincinnati, and it becomes the manifestation of our civic pride. Like We're proud about all those things. We think our city's great, those of us who live here, and a lot of people come here and go, oh my goodness, I had no idea. But at the end of the day, the sports teams give us the opportunity when they're winning, which is why winning is so important, to puff our chest out a little bit and say, see, see, we told you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I, I wanted to ask this question before, but I didn't want to interrupt you. You know how you said when when Marvin said, why are you leaving? And you said, I have a vision. Can you please explain that to me? Can you paint that for me? Hey, how did you get the vision? Like, do you spend time meditating, exercising, reading, talking to people? How did you know? So I, I, I do all those things. Um, so th- there's a little bit of a quick chronology. So I left Cincinnati City Council. Yes. And a friend of mine um, invited me to be on the board of Jack and Grace's Youth Soccer Club. So my son and my younger daughter were really good soccer players. I coached them as little kids, loved coaching my kids in soccer. Um, I had like soccer coaching for dummies to like know what the practice lessons should be. Dude, you were like um, Ted Lasso. But so then they became good players and they started playing select with like professional uh-huh, coaches. Uh-huh. I traveled all over the United States with my son uh, and his team because they were state cup champions. And so I joined the board and then quickly became the president of the board and then merged with another big club in Kentucky. Uh, at that time it was called Kings soccer. Yes. And um, so we became Kings hammer. I became the president of Kings hammer and I started to meet all the other presidents around town. Okay. And I mentioned the big red machine earlier. My son and daughter liked soccer, loved soccer, the way I loved the big red machine. Yes. But for them, they watched Manchester United. Yes. So, so th- I wanted my kids to have a home team, a team of their own, to go to the games, to root for, to be passionate about. In the same way, I loved, I mean, I would work to get straight A's to go to the Reds games. I wanted my kids to have that opportunity for a soccer team. And I probably, and I give credit to Leslie Haxby McNeil and Mr. Nagel and Jerry Walsh and Hummel and all these mentors of mine, I believed I was uniquely positioned to make it happen. And so I had the sports background from the Bengals. I had the political background from city council. I had some soccer experience from the youth soccer scene, and I wrote a business plan, and I did it on a legal pad, and I would just be at my desk at the Bengals, and I'd have thoughts, and then I'd be at home, and I'd have thoughts, and I literally just started writing a business plan. I was sort of like, hey, I sort of like this, 
And the first thing I wrote down on the legal pad is build a relevant sports team. Um, and it would uh, and it would need a strong uh, ownership, right? You have to invest in the enterprise. It needed a, a professional sports management team, like people who knew sports, right? It needed a first class uh, venue, and it maybe was going to be the Bengals, but it wasn't. And maybe it was going to be at Great American Ballpark, but it wasn't. So I went up to UC. Um, uh, it needed uh, to. Um, have good soccer. I always say pass the eyeball test. Like you can watch your kids play for free. So why are you going to sure. pay? It has to be, it isn't going to be the English Premier League and isn't going to be Major League Soccer, but it had to pass the eyeball of being good soccer, which the ownership yeah. had to invest in. And then we had to build a relevant sports brand in this market because what startup wants to be irrelevant? And I said to be totally. relevant, we had to be a winning team, a family-friendly, inclusive club, and a franchise that's giving back and committed to making Cincinnati better. Those words, what I just said, those five points with those three key values were on my legal pad. And that is how this whole thing started and everything flowed out from there. Did you save that legal pad? Of course. Yeah, we did a documentary. There was a documentary done on FC Cincinnati. And I like, yeah. That's so freaking And so awesome. I started inviting people to come over to my house uh, at my kitchen table and, and like talking Who? it out with Who them. did you invite? Who'd you invite? So um, there was a guy at UC who was uh, that year, UC was playing their games at Paul Brown Stadium. So their head of sales, Jeff Smith, um, uh, I invited. So he became the sales guy. Dan McNally was a UC soccer coach who was also a Kings Hammer coach, a British guy. Um, there was a guy, Gary DeJesus, a former Procter and Gamble guy, uh, Tommy Galerter, who is our media guy. He's the one that does all the videos, the hype videos, does our broadcast, broadcast the games. And so, um, and then, uh, James Zimmerman and Rob McDonald were doing some of the legal work, um, for me. And so that was sort of my little kitchen cabinet. And then in, um, but before them, this is sort of an important part in January of 2015, I had a call from Carl Lindner. Okay. And the way this goes down is I get a call, Jeff, I have Carl Lindner on the phone. Will you take his call? Sure. So Carl, hi, Jeff. How are you? Hi, Mr. Lindner. He says, I understand you're trying to bring professional soccer to Cincinnati. And I said, well, that's true. And he said, do you have your owner yet? And I said, well, you know, George Joseph, I've talked to and a couple other people I've talked to, but you know, I, I don't think that the big owner, which might be $5 million is to come on board until I have a place to play. And I'm still working on that because the Bengals said no, the Reds said no. And so I'm still trying to figure that out. He says, well, I know that. Uh, you may not know this, but I'm a, I'm on the board at the University of Cincinnati, and I know you've been talking to Santa Ono, President Ono, and Mike Bone, yes. the, the uh, athletic director. And last night we considered your plan, and UC is going to be willing to let you play there. So back to my question: Would you let me be your owner? Oh my God! And I said, Well, you're on the list of people I was going to call, Carl. I promise you that. And he said, Well, listen, I'd like to have lunch sometime and hear more about your plan. I said, okay. He said, what are you doing for lunch today? And so I went over and had lunch with Carl Lindner. I came back and told Katie and Troy Blackburn, that soccer thing that I brought up, you guys passed on a few months ago. Well, Carl Lindner wants to own the team and UC wants to host the team. And so maybe this thing has some legs. And they're like, okay, well, you know, keep us posted. Five months later, Carl and I went up to see Don Garber at Major League Soccer. And we wanted to know if we do this at the minor league level and we're successful and we laid yeah. out our business plan, yeah. Is there any reason that Cincinnati couldn't be an MLS franchise? And uh, we heard what we needed to hear. And so that night I went to dinner at a little French bistro in New York uh, in Midtown and with Carl. And he said, okay, listen, my family and I are all in, oh uh, including to go up to Major League Soccer on one condition. You got to run the team. You got to leave the Bengals and run the team. And I knew I was going to have sweat equity in the deal. Like that was sort of a first day conversation at lunch. Yes. But this was the first time I figured he'd have one of his business lieutenants no and be at the Bengals just doing my thing. Did and, you want um, to? Did you want it? Well, I'm going to be honest. I never really thought like I was going to be on the board. I mean, I was going to help make sure God. this thing happened. And so, you know, pretty much Carl and I shook hands and I went back to the hotel room and called Lindsay and said, Hey, you made this offer. And like the only way this is going to happen. And I wanted it to happen. Like, again, I can only say I had a vision I knew this thing was going to work. I had zero doubt. And so if Carl's telling me the only way this happens for Cincinnati is for me to leave the Bengals and run it, then I was going to run it. Um, because I felt 
that soccer has this international profile. Yes. And the, it's the sport with the biggest international uh, profile. And at a time we're competing for North American headquarters uh, of international companies and talent to come here and investment. I want to be this hip, cool city that has a soccer team that yes. has lit the city on fire that everyone can say, what's different about Cincinnati? Cincinnati's got something going on, but we've got this new soccer team that's just unbelievable. Yes. And I felt we were at the perfect time. 3CDC, the growing corporate community, Procter & Gamble was hot, Kroger was hot. Like I just felt it was the perfect time to launch this. Yes. And I felt like people, particularly young people, when I say this as a season ticket holder and lifetime lover of the Reds and, and blessed to have had the opportunity with the Bengals and still have season tickets for now 25 years with the Bengals, I just felt like people were ready for another sport. And young people love soccer. All the data was there. Young people love soccer, boys and girls. Yes. So uh, I work at Health Carousel and we were one of the first sponsors early I know you on. Were. Yeah, you sure were. And, and we still use, we're still sponsoring at some level. I don't think the level that we were before, but we use that for, for recruiting and we do all of our events there. It's amazing. Ready okay. Cincinnati brings me, when they do pitches that are international, they bring me because people have heard about FC Cincinnati and, and I get to tell this story a little bit as a way to recruit people to come to Cincinnati. It's cool. Yeah, it's amazing. Okay. I, I mean, I could talk to you for another two hours. Uh, however, we have to end our show. It's been amazing. Yes, I know. Seriously. We're going to the Xavier basketball game. Oh my God. You got to go. All right. It's off you. at seven. So yeah. Oh my God. I'm sorry. All right. Jeff, We're good. Thank you. I've enjoyed thank it. You so it's gone fast. Thank you so much for being on the show. I've, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Sarah. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod. <laughs>